Welcome to the Sales Influence Podcast, where we talk about finding the why and how people buy. I'm your host, Victor Antonio. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for letting me those ears. If you're watching this on video, thank you for letting me the eyeballs. Today, we're going to talk money. We're going to talk pricing. I got Chris Mealy. Chris, how are you doing this morning? I'm good. Thanks for having me, Victor. Hey, man. See, see, this guy is so super cool. I watched one of his videos and he's got like, he's really <laughs> super cool, but I talked to him pre-podcast, pre-recording you know, recording, and he's actually much more animated pre, so I think he's going to try to be cool and animated at the same time. Let's see if we can oh, get Chris enough. going. <laughs> hey, Chris. Uh, I don't know if I can be as, as animated as you, Victor, but I'll, I'll try to keep up. There you go. There you go. So, Chris, uh, I think her name is Katie. Katie sent me your information to be on the yes. podcast. Is that her name? And when I saw the whole topic of pricing, I'm like, oh, I got to talk to this guy. There was like no hesitation. Uh, like I get a lot of requests for people to be on the podcast. There was no hesitation on this one. And because I think, as I was mentioning before we got started, is that it's one of those undervalued tools, not only for sales, but also from a, a profitability standpoint. And there's so many dynamics to pricing that people just think it's about price, discount. No, there's more to it than that. And so before we jump into it, Give the folks on the podcast just a little background, who you are, what you do, and a little bit about, you know, what you do. Well, so I, I uh, started my career at Ernst & Young, and then they got me into uh, this thing called engagement economics, which is code for you get to see how much money the firm makes in relation to what you make. And you can't help but to conclude that you're on the wrong side of the formula. And so I started the software company. Uh, I guess it was in the late 90s, um, built that from the ground up and actually hired software pricing partners in 08. Uh, that's how I met the team here. And then ultimately, when I exited that in 2013, I took over the practice here. And that's kind of how I, I ended up uh, somehow in the in the incredible niche called pricing, which if you had asked me if that was a career, I, I would have told you I, I didn't even realize that was a profession at the time. What is engagement economics? Break that down. I've never heard that phrase before, by the way. Uh, so it's probably a consulting speak term. Engagement economics is uh, billing. That's all it is. It's just okay. basically you're running a project. You got 100 people on the project. You're at this rate and other person's at this other rate. You have to figure out how that project's going to be profitable. And you are managing the, 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 the end um, deposit into the partner's Pockets. I really, I really like the way you deflated my perception of that whole phrase. I thought you were going to give me some beautiful phrase. And just go <laughs> billing. It's just billing. It's a fa but, fancy term for making money. Yeah. So, so you're 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 with EY at this point. Uh, you're moving to engagement economics, and and so what have you found about pricing? I mean, give give myself and the folks on the podcast just an interesting, you know, maybe a thirty thousand foot view of why pricing matters. Well, so when engagement economics, one of the things that you can't help but to conclude, and, and by the way, you're, you're executing projects and you're, as you grow in your career, you're responsible for the profitability of some portion of the business. And you can't help but to conclude that you're really constrained in two fronts. There's only 2,080 hours in a year. And then secondly, there's a limit to what you'll pay me per hour. And the, the legal profession has this huge problem too. I mean, you might pay six, seven, eight hundred bucks an hour, but no, nobody's going to pay you $5,000 an hour. And so the idea that as you grow your career and you learn all this great stuff in legal profession, especially you sort of reach that peak of that billable rate, you, you hit that limit and you will never get paid 
full value. You know, you because ultimately when you're in your 50s and 60s, you should probably be billing $5,000 an hour because your knowledge base is so huge, but but you can't get there. So I remember distinctly thinking at the time, you know, this is kind of a crappy model, right? Because you're going to have to have just a boatload of people in order to get the numbers up and there's just a real limit to the performance of that economic engine, if you will, of, of, of making money in that regard. And so when I then started my uh, software company, you're right, everybody thinks about the product. In fact, it's, that's not unique to software, by the way. But nobody ever really has the discipline about how you would make money. And so pricing, it's unfortunate we call it pricing because everybody thinks of it in the terms of the magic number. Ooh, I should... I should charge Victor uh, $100 for this thing or $10,000 for that thing. But pricing is much, much more about how it is that you're going to charge for your software, how you're going to, or your product or service, how you're going to package that, and how you're going to give incentives to people to buy a lot of that. And then somewhere way down in the, in the weeds is, well, what should that magic price point be? But, but we all start like way down in the weeds, and that's what we think of as pricing. So it was a huge eye-opener for me to understand that, pricing had more, much more to do with than just the, the magic number. So, so when you're talking to a company for the first time and you're consulting with a company for the first time, uh, by the way, give me your ideal client profile, like somebody you'd like to typically work with. I know it could vary, but I mean, just an ideal client, an example. Well, so uh, it's funny because that is the number one question in one of the three disciplines that we have packaging, which is what is the ideal customer profile? What does that look like? And for us, it's going to be a fast growth company. It's going to be uh, an executive team who um, is uh, knows how to execute, right? So we're not uh, building uh, necessarily, our, our practice line doesn't produce a PowerPoint deck. We have sophisticated software and tools that get deployed into the organization and that executive team needs to be able to deploy the changes. Because if you deploy the changes to pricing, you, you could go out of business if you do it wrong. So there's this nasty little thing that sits in the middle called risk. And a lot of people get recommendations and just don't roll them out. It's just too scary. And so our practice is all around getting people comfortable with the reality of the, the economic reality of their, those recommendations. And so the ideal customer then carries with it, I think, something that really connects into your world, Victor. And that is, there are in every pricing strategy, there is a philosophy, an underpinning, if you will, of how you want to treat customers. Our philosophy is customers should be treated uniformly and fairly and consistently, and we call that market fairness. If you come in and you buy something from me, and then tomorrow somebody else comes in and buys that exact same thing, we should never have a scenario where like you paid X and the guy that came in tomorrow, he paid like 4X, right? But as you know, this exists in software and exists in in uh, maybe used car sales as well, uh, and other areas. And so, so the idea then is under the philosophy, what we're looking for is um, the art or science of pricing. So if you subscribe to the idea that pricing is an art, by definition, you'll organize your company around sales having maximum flexibility. So we'll say, Victor, uh, go forth and multiply. Just land deals, and I know the list price is $100 or $10,000. 
I don't care what the net price is, just go make it happen, right? So that's sort of saying like sales isn't, uh, uh, pricing is an art and it's part of the sales function. And so not only do you have to build rapport, not only do you have to match needs and wants, not only do you have to navigate through the sales process and not only do you have to do a whole bunch of other things, but you also have to figure out how to make up things like list prices, net prices, and ultimately land the deal at some sort of reality. In the other philosophy, <clears throat> which is, more prevalent now, but still young in its uh, transformation in the industry, pricing is getting elevated as a discipline, which says it doesn't belong to the purview of sales. It's a science. The organization has a responsibility to make that science, to institute that philosophy. And then, and then when they do that, this wonderful thing happens. All that minutia of how I'm going to hey, let me go talk to Chad in the back, Victor. It's a great month to buy some software. I think I can get you a special deal if you can kind of make your decision by Friday and that whole rodeo that everybody knows really well. That all disappears and sales becomes more of a machine in the sense of me guiding you through choices, saying, hey, I know you want a better discount. Let me show you how you can earn that. Oh, I know you want this other uh, thing and you're constrained on your budget. Let me show you package B instead of package A. It's that kind of a of a philosophy. And then, and that really has wonderful outcomes, right? Huge acceleration on sales, huge ballooning of growth. And that, that's when you start to get achieve what we call hyper growth, which is the fastest growth curve that you can be as a company, because you're constrained now by people. Your sales are so voluminous. You just can't onboard people fast enough. I love onboard. it. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things I like about what you just said, implicit in what you said, is that when you're when you have this pricing as a science and you move away from uh, the art slash rodeo, you called it, that you you force sales it's a rodeo. people. To really, it, it is a rodeo. <laughs> it's you a force, rodeo. You, you force people to actually sell on value. I, that's kind of one of the that's things right. that I, I, I'm always about that. But you, you meant something interesting because you said right in between this whole, you know, what we should do and what we ought to be doing, there's this thing called risk. And so, because I can only imagine that as companies, as as the as the I guess the discipline of pricing is taking more of center stage, which I am I am so with you on this. Like you don't understand, I am with you on this. That pricing is more of a of a discipline that needs to be taken more seriously, and not just kind of like relegated to uh, here's some ad market pricing, just kind of either above cost or below cost, whatever it may be. Let's just sell the damn thing. You're saying no, it's more of a science. What do you find when you come into companies and you say, look, you know, we really have to kind of start looking at the pricing as a science and not an art. You know, what are some of the pushback slash resistance you get from these companies? Well, the, the, the most common pushback is the immediate reaction from sales. And, and so if you just think about those two philosophies, one philosophy says that, um, well, well, let me rewind by saying we know from our competitive research function and from our uh, many, many of our engagements, the, the reason that people select software isn't because you were the lowest price. And this is true in many industries outside of software. In fact, people, people select on a wide variety of attributes. Price is one of them and it's important, but a lot of times people will select the more expensive option. And so, so but if you're not grounded in that philosophy and you, you grew up, let's say, within an organization that has a philosophy that you sort of make it up, right? There's this thing called a suggested list price, mm -hmm. but it's mm -hmm. just suggested, Victor. Yeah. Just you know, go forth and multiply. So if you yeah. come from that kind of an environment, then you, and by the way, this is a very natural thing to come from when the, when the company is younger because the entrepreneur or the founder is like, 
just make it happen so that you give mm -hmm. a wide latitude, a wide flexibility to go make it happen. And many companies don't transition into that discipline. They just maintain that structure. Now they have a hundred salespeople that are going to make it happen. And those hundred salespeople rep really represent a hundred micro businesses inside of one company. And in fact, some of our, uh, the buyers of software, especially, they'll call the same company two different reps and they'll just compete with each other, like in the same sales organization. And so what you're trying to do is, is get the, the, um, that pushback sort of uh, quieted down because they, they will lose some flexibility. Now they'll see the flexibility in manipulating the price, but what really is under the covers there is the commission, their mortgage, their bills. Salespeople love rewards and they love recognition. And when you understand that when you systematize and routinize the pricing with a discipline, they get this thing called deal velocity. <clears throat> and this is very similar in um, if you were to hire somebody to sell your house. If, if the recruiter, I'm sorry, if the uh, uh, real estate agent sells their own home, they on average get like 10 to 15% better. If they sell your home, you know, they're, they're going to tell you the, you ever hear the phrase, <laughs> Victor, the first offer you get is usually the best, <laughs> which is yeah, total yeah. BS. But yeah. the reason they say that is it's deal velocity because they know right. that they'd rather close five houses and same with the salesperson. If they can be convinced that they can close five deals in the time that it would have taken one deal from the discipline of pricing, all of a sudden it's a complete, you know, they're going to get on board really quick. Right. And right. so that, that you have it, this has always been a game of change management and it's always been a game of mitigating risk. And the second pushback you get is just raw fear. There are many stories uh, I can tell you uh, uh, just within the last few years. I remember we had a customer we pulled on board and right before we pulled them on board, they had made a change of their pricing, literally shut down sales for 45 days because they didn't understand the ripple impact of that kind of a change. They happened to change a price point and a little twist on their packaging that was not a good idea. Uh, we have another uh, company that uh, rolled out their new pricing and 33, almost 34% of their new customer acquisition growth rate just gone. So then they made a subsequent change to the model, lost another 30%, executive team gets replaced. So like the cost of mm -hmm. a mistake especially if you are funded by a private equity firm and let's say I'm the CEO and you've got a board behind you, you make a mistake like that, you're moving on to that's greener big, pastures. That's big. Yeah. Talk to me about those two without, without divulging names or you know uh, company yeah. names. Talk about the first one. I guess both of them are really interesting. The one where they changed pricing and they lost, I guess, sales for like 45 days. Like, What was the mistake there? What was the error that they made there? Well, so what they did is they... They, they said, you know what, um, we have some, and this happens a lot, by the way. And I think, again, this is not unique to software. And remember, my perspective is software, but much of this will, will traverse across uh, outside of the software business model. Many companies will argue that the thing that they created is so valuable that every time that you use it, it's just full value. And, mm -hmm. and so in the world of software, that would kind of say... Uh, uh, maybe you're in um, aerial imagery and every time you pull an aerial image, you're going to argue, I get complete value out of that. Or maybe you're in um, some other uh, 
AI model on facial detection. Every time you recognize a face, you know, you're going to receive full value. Yeah. Well, what if it's not the face that you wanted to recognize? You know, mm-hmm. I'm looking for Victor. I didn't find Victor. So right. right away, all of the no hits on Victor aren't really the same value as Victor. Right. And so this idea that everything is the same value leads companies down the road of saying, you know what, let's just have a uh, a list price and we'll multiply by what Victor needs and, and then we'll call it a day. And Victor uh, comes in and, and you say, uh, all right, great. I'll take a million. And I say, okay, great. Yeah, no problem. I'll just take a million times my list price. And you're like, whoa, hold on a second. Like that's a huge number. That doesn't make any sense at all. And so uh, this, like many other companies fell into the trap of thinking that what they created uh defied the logic of how people perceive value. And the real lesson learned is that um, value is not uh, something that uh, scales linearly. It doesn't, it doesn't mean, um, it doesn't, uh, when you deploy software, there's such an audience of people that can use that software that by definition, you are destined to get to an audience that says, oh, I love the software. But the thing is, I'm only going to use it like once a month, Victor. So can I have a, can I just have a discount over here? And it's in that phenomenon that if you don't address that in your pricing, your packaging and your licensing, which are the three disciplines that we do collectively, we call that monetization, that you can fall into a real trap. And so what happened in this example is people said, Hey, looks awesome. Love it. Astronomical pricing. No, thank you. And they went with an alternative. And now you have to uncheck that lever, right? So, And that's the other thing that really is terrible about this because the perception has been set, the market has talked, people have blogged, people, buyers are now going elsewhere. It takes a long time to undo a mistake like that. It's not like you could just right. go back and say, oops, let's go set it back to where it was and we'll just kind of pretend we didn't do that. I mean, you damaged the business for probably a good solid year. I got that. The, you know, what's interesting is as I'm listening to you, and by the way, I love the phrase, I wrote it down, uh, value doesn't scale linearly. I, I love that phrase. Great phrase. Yeah. The, the, because there's a lot of behavioral economics in here that it's almost irrational at some time, right? Like for the example, the, uh, you gave the, I, you know, it doesn't have the same value all the time. So therefore, I, you know, come on. And plus I've been a customer for a while. Come on, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, you know, throw a little yeah. discount my way, show some love, show some break points here in your volume. And so I think that's interesting. Now, the other one you mentioned also, they, they, they move their price points and they realize they lost business, right? So how does a company, how do you help a company avoid some of those mistakes? Let's say I'm a company, I'm thinking about, you know, changing. I got, I don't know, 10,000 SKUs. I'm exaggerating. But how do you help me with something like that? Well, so there's a lot of reasons for, um, there's a lot of reasons for really large SKU counts. And uh, those usually derive themselves from overly complicated packaging, uh, number one. So I say, well, instead of, so one of the three disciplines is how do I put, if I forget about a car or something I can touch, imagine software, it's intellectual property. You know, I've got a million features back here. So if I came to you and said, well, just tell me which ones you want off this list that goes down like Santa Claus's list, you know, a million miles long, and and you're going to somehow configure what you need, it's impossible. So you have to put something into some rational structure and it's a, some sort of finite number of packages so so if you have a ton of SKUs, you probably have overly complicated packaging which is really common and so what happens in that area is um the the overly complicated packages means that i can take a bunch of different choices 
And every time I take a choice, if you went back to your car example, want a car with a radio and a, a blue dial instead of a red dial, like, you know, you got to have like a skew or some descriptor to that. And then you end up with this like crazy list of stuff that salespeople have to choose from. So the one of the disciplines, and this this is the connection to the sales floor that often is missed. People think that the buyer is having a problem with the price. What's really happening if you want salespeople to defend value, your packaging has to be aligned to that group of customers that you're going after. Because if the packaging is not aligned, then I as a buyer can come and say, Victor, I love this. Now in software, I would say something like, I love the enterprise edition. It's a perfect match for me, but I'm not really gonna use the API layer because I don't have that kind of system in the back. And that's roughly like 20%, I think. So can I just take a 20% discount? I mean, I'll sign the contract today, I'm ready to go, but I'm just, so I'm arguing a partial use. And when, and, and so I think there's this perspective and a misperception that people think that the buyer, and believe me, some procurement teams do this on purpose, but many buyers, they're not just trying to, you know, squish down the price and to try to get you to move down. What they're arguing is a partial use. They're saying, well, the package that you're giving me kind of does a little too much and I'm not going to use all that. And if you give somebody, the customer, a partial use argument, then you have to understand that they have a reasonable, rational argument to be able to say, I love it. I'm just not going to use but, all of it. And now right. we have this phenomenon that all of the optics go around discounting and the sales. So, so one of the things that happens is the salesperson can get saddled with optics that make it look like they have a discounting problem, but it's not a discounting problem. It's actually the packages are just completely out of line with the marketplace that the packages that's, that's, that you offer aren't resonating. You know, I've never, I've never heard anybody articulate it that way, but and I never thought about partial use. And I'm like, as you're talking, I'm going, but he's right. Right. You, you, the package is off and the clients thank, argue thank, from that perspective. I, I remember when I bought uh, uh, the last car, I was like, Hey, that's great. I know that this particular edition is called the sport edition. It's the last one on the lot, but I don't, I'm not going to use any of that stuff. Right. Can I have a and discount? It's like, and, the, and the poor, sa- yeah, yeah. Can I have a discount? Poor salesperson, like, because he just can't pluck it out. Uh, a quick question before I forget: Do you typically work with a company that has, you know, a, a certain skew count? Is that kind of one of your identifiers or attributes of an ideal customer? No, because what could make them ideal is they have. I, I mean, it, it. So we specialize in things that in in one group. Um, I launched to the web first. It, things are pretty simple. I have one product. I'm early on in my life cycle. I haven't made an acquisition yet. My SKU counts are pretty reasonable, right? Uh, in the other case, I started back in the 90s with on-premise software. So I've got thousands of SKUs back here on that crazy stuff. Then I later launched a cloud edition, more SKUs. I have a whole professional services or you know more SKUs. And now we're getting into the hundreds and thousands. And that's a real mind bender for uh, salespeople. It also is <clears throat> unfortunate that the way in which volume discounting is structured is often embedded into the SKUs as well. So for example, I might say, well, I have a SKU for uh, this podcasting software uh, up to five users. And then I have another SKU for the same exact podcasting software for up to 10 SKUs, up to 20 or users, up to 20 users, up to 30 users. And so now all of a sudden I have one SKU that I see a hundred times. And so there's that phenomenon in there too. So what happens is 
what's really happening is these three disciplines, what I choose to count, licensing, you know, users or number of uh, um, uh, facial detections, I think we talked earlier, packaging, you know, what is it that I'm going to buy? And then ultimately price point and what does that look like at one unit? What does it look like at a million units? That typically just gets all munched together into this bucket that somebody says, we need to fix our pricing. And it's not until you tear that apart and understand that there are distinct problems in each one of those three areas that you can actually put the model together. If you, if you put it all in one bucket, it's a cluster. You just can't, you can't process it, you can't fix it, you can't come at it, you got skew counts coming out your noses, you have packages mm -hmm. coming out your noses, I mean, it's a mess. It becomes and, and by the way, the salespeople yeah. really have it tough in environments like that. That's a that's a very tough selling environment. Very yeah, I remember we said we had a I think a thirty thousand SKU count at one of my companies that I was that's selling, just and it's just yeah. yeah. How do you sell that stuff? You know, you you brought up this example of there's a you know there's this API layer within the software that you're not going to use, right? And you know, and partial the customer's like argument. Yeah. partial yeah the partial use, and he's like, uh, you know, can I get a discount? I mean, what do you how do you help a company out of that little mess right there? You know, what do you suggest to them? Well, so that's, that's, that's a complicated situation because in the software, just like if you, uh, if we went earlier in a physical product, you know, we would design the product around that package. And then once it's like manufactured, you're stuck in software, you get a, sometimes a little bit more flexibility because mm -hmm. it is just code. The problem is that it's just code and, and you want to treat customers uniformly and consistently. So if, if we started changing packages all over the place well then we have really complicated billing everybody's on a right. one-off and then there's this real thing called revenue recognition and the way in which revenue is recognized in software can get really funky really fast because if a salesperson creates a unique term or condition it can have pretty large consequences in how the company recognizes that revenue and that creates uh, all kinds of havoc. But in oh, general, yeah. you know, the, 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 the challenge that you're describing is, let's talk about it in two buckets. The first bucket says, we clearly have a package that is designed likely incorrectly, unless you came back and said, well, that just happens once in a blue moon. And that's the real mm -hmm. question, right? How often and then what percentage of revenue is that, rec is that um, uh, representing? If that's a systemic issue, the right way to handle it is to revise the packaging. And one of the things that you could look at is not baking everything into what we call this one-size-fits-all offer. That's typically what happens. You build a product, you just put everything under one umbrella, and you tell yourself, you know what, the victors of the world need everything because they need to do all this stuff. And then later, there's so much in that bucket that the victors of the world are coming back and saying, I just don't need all that crap. I just need 80% of that crap. Can I please have a 20% discount? Now, in the case where, of course, this is a more transformative design change that needs to occur that may not happen within that transaction window that the salesperson is trying to close. And I think that's the second part of the question is, in that moment, what does the salesperson do for the customer that's arguing that? And I think that that's probably something where um, some business terms and conditions could help. So for example, um, depending on the size of the organization, you could say something like, <clears throat> okay, I'm going to go ahead and take that out of scope. I'm not, I mean, technically I'm going to deliver you software that allows you to use the API layer, but we're going to monitor it in the back and we're going to make sure that if you do start using it, then you will have to true up, right? 
The other option is the most software companies that are sophisticated do have a deal desk. And this is a pretty common one that comes through that somebody, you know, the problem with these arguments, partial use arguments, is that when they hit the deal desk, they're usually approved. So it's sort of like a formality that doesn't really solve the problem because when you're sitting around the deal desk and let's just say you and I were sitting down and we're talking about Starbucks and it's a big deal and Starbucks is saying, but look, I mean, there's a serious situation here. We've built rapport. They're super nice guys and gals. And they're saying, we're just not using the API layer. You and I are going to say, well, that's not fair that we charge them. So, so guess what we're going to do? We're going to approve that as well. And so, um, it's a, on the short term fix, it's, it's problematic. And on the long term issue, it's easily fixable. But in essence, the problem that you're trying to solve is you're charging for value delivery, but the customer doesn't need all that value. That's the problem. Right. And so you either take yeah. portions of that I, value. By the and, way, yeah. No, I was going to, I always use the example of Microsoft Word. Like we probably use 10 to 20% of the features in that thing. That's right. You know, so we can make the argument there. I, I wanted to ask you, because it's, it's really, I'm, I'm loving this. Kind of, I, I can listen to you all day, man. This is <laughs> great stuff, man. The, I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, okay. Because I, I love the way you're slicing and dicing things, because it's never a simple answer, is it? Do you, do you look at a company's, like, if you come to my company, Victor Inc., I'll say I've got 5,000 SKUs. Do you study you know, uh, you know their their profitability, what industry norms are for profitability for certain products, and then look at theirs and say, hmm, there's something not right here. You know, do you do any of that? And if you do, you know, how do you help a company kind of highlight things and maybe look at pricing within those niches? Well, so this is where I think our practice is very um, unique in that regard. And so in typical consultancies, we would deliver to you a, a wow deck and it would have lots of really cool pie charts and graphs and a PowerPoint slide <laughs> that tells you all this great stuff to do. I'm going to borrow that phrase. I'm going to call it a wow deck from now on. Yeah. I got a wow deck. It's the one that makes like a dent in the conference table when you drop it. Uh, and it's, uh, it's, it's, not, um, it's not implementable. And unfortunately, once all that stuff gets in there, you know, it's probably out of date in 30 to 60 days anyhow. So we have built, so I, I have a computer science degree. Everybody at our company uh, here at Software Pricing Partners is a former software executive, chief product officer, former CEO, chief mon uh, marketing officer. It's that kind of a team. And we have built our own serverless technology in AWS. And what we do is we pull those SKUs in. So we would take and consume the last couple of years of your line item level detail. And then we use that as a baseline and anything that we construct in the future around how you want to do things, we simulate what it looks like and we, and we show you the impact. This is part of how you get confidence to know that what you're about to do isn't going to hurt you. And so I can tell you another fun story. There was a, a CFO that um, was getting a sense that a lot of money was being let. They had recently gotten into enterprise space with our help and they were getting the sense that there was a large amount of money that was left on the table, but the chief revenue officer who is now killing it doesn't want to rock the boat, right? So you have this, this stress point, if you will. And so on the financial side, they want a 30% increase because they're sensing huge amounts of money being left on the table. And I think they were largely right. And then on the, on the sales side, it's like, well, you know, we're killing it. I know I want to kill it more, but if you're killing it, you know, it's hard to sell that you could 2x kill it. I mean, you're already killing it at some level, so why rock the boat? And so anyway, um, we were able to show in that model that 
if you were to institute that change, how that blows down into the deal and its component parts and all the different quantities that are being bought and the different SKUs that are being impacted actually would yield somewhere around 50 and 60% increases for some customers and decreases for others. Like they're putting this top down number in aggregate is super dangerous because you have to remember if you're discounting, you're also surcharging nine times out of 10. If you have a sales force that's discounting, you're also surcharging. That means at some point you sense that Victor's a tough cookie. I'm going to discount him more. But then maybe when we sell to somebody over here, we're like, well, <laughs> he's maybe not pushing as hard. So we're going to go ahead and lift the price up. So the way that that impacts into the reality of the transactions is ridiculously important. And so we came up with a strategy where we move them, tried to move them in steps so that each step they made, you could measure the response and then ask yourself the question, should I keep pushing or not? And it's in the education of the reality of those uh, economic impacts of the decisions from the changes that you make in your packaging and pricing that we're modeling and exploring. And that's the risk mitigation game. And if you're not doing your homework, I remember on a call last week, somebody told me, well, we're going to take our list prices and cut them in half. And I said, I, I, don't, I don't think that's a good idea because <laughs> it's really hard to put them back up, right? And, and, and I said, well, right. let's talk about the assumptions under the model. And he said, well, you know, the assumption that I'm making is, you know, uh, the demand, you know, of the deals that will close will more than make up for it. And my response was, well, what if it doesn't, right? And that's, that's never going to happen. You know, that's not going to happen. I mean, really, I don't know. No, yeah. Of course not. Yeah, it's get, that's where you can get really hurt. I mean, really hurt. And and those are the things that can really destabilize. And if you're doing those kinds of things in a pandemic year where we have all this like crazy noise happening outside, where there's things that 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 are occurring that are outside of your control that might throw you for a loop, now we have very dangerous, very dangerous combinations of things that can happen. That's amazing. I mean, you know, God, there's so much in there. It's yeah, I love it too. So let me go. Well, and uh, Victor, a the, the, the no, no, no. Well, I was just going to tell you one other thing that the, the issue here is that term aggregate. And it's funny how many companies just use that magic number, you know, this KPI and I've got, I'm just going to institute a 3% price increase. That's, that's the game of top down. You, you have to be bottom up. You, that doesn't, it does, the math doesn't flow out that way. Right. Your 3% right. increase it, could, it, could be very different. Yeah. It's also the, the I don't want to call it intellectual laziness, but there's some intellectual laziness sometimes. Just say, let's do a 3%, whatever it may be, across the board. I wanted to ask you, you, you mentioned jokingly about, you know, uh, you know our, uh, AI, using AI. You know, you know, how does AI fit now into price modeling? You know, I, I got my perspectives on it, but I'd love to hear your perspective on how that really fits in now. Well, so uh, in the game of, intellectual property, we are monetizing capabilities and we don't care what form they come in. They could come in the form of a software feature. They could come in the form of a service. They could come in the form of um, an insight. So for example, I, I have my own AI engine, let's say, and I've analyzed my own customer environments and I've determined some magic insight about recruiting. And, um, and actually that's a real example. If you recruit to people who have gone to school in your college hometown, even if they're out of state, even if they're not looking, they're four times more likely to move back to their college hometown for a job. And that's a wonderful insight. If you're in Charlotte, for example, where it's really hard to find tech resources because the banks are, are gobbling them up, you have to expand the horizon and look elsewhere. Um, 
So AI is a capability. And the question with AI, as is often the case with, um, and now we're looking at packaging and we're talking about value, is what does that AI impact? So um, um, let's go back to the example of uh, aerial imagery and I'm using AI to identify interesting things on an aerial image. One could argue that that enhances everything, right? In which case, it's probably, you could make an argument that it's maybe part of the core offer. Maybe it's not something that's separate that you can add on later. I mean, the problem that you have in software is you create so many great features and they come out not all at once that that the sort of warty looking, uh, uh, I always think of Mr. Potato Head, like when it comes to the, you know, it just kind of evolves like, oh, I have AI, let's stick the nose on over here. And oh, I have this great reporting module, let's stick an arm on, you know, before you know it, it looks really weird. But the question that you want to ask yourself is, is AI sort of a targeted capability or is it an enhancement to everything you offer? And it turns out that it can, it, it's both, right? In some companies, it enhances the whole platform offering, in which case that has a whole series of things that you would process and think about. In other cases, it really truly is just a targeted thing that you add on that enhances some aspect. So maybe in the, the security space is probably a great example. You know, AI components can be very targeted in what they're able to do and um, may not uh, enhance everything. They might just be really attacking some sort of um, aspect of uh, cybersecurity or what they call uh, shrinking mm -hmm. the attack vector, you know, just making it very, very tiny uh, gates for people to potentially get through that rather than really wide gates from a hacking perspective. I was uh, I, I was reading this article. That was interesting. You know, uh, two things. One was I, I saw that, like for example, Salesforce.com has something called CPQ. Or I forgot what it says for like cost price quote something like that. And basically, if you move the the discount lever like a couple of percentage points, it'll it'll actually predict whether you'll win the deal or lose the deal. So I thought that was interesting. So just kind of put that in placeholder. And I want to get your opinion on this. Then I saw one where grocery stores are now using. Uh, LED for price stickers, so to speak, right? LED displays. And they're actually adjusting prices uh, as things become, uh, I'm, I'm thinking about like produce, you know, when it starts to go bad, they dynamically or the system dynamically adjusts the price to try to move them off the shelf. Yeah. You know, how do you see dynamic pricing, you know, or discounting, depending on your perspective, you know, how do you see that playing into, uh, you know, I guess, business today? Well, I, I don't actually, <laughs> and, but there's a reason for that. Um, I think there is the world of B2C and I think that dynamic pricing is, you know, when we do things like um, a conjoint analysis or trying to test for willingness to pay, we have these monster volumes of, of, you know, we're looking at chocolate bars or a can of Coke and things that people know what they are. Right. And so there's a, there's, there's a, there's a B2C focus on that, but here's the, the challenge. Um, that doesn't work in B2B, and here's why. If, and I'll just give you a, a couple frame-ups. Let's imagine that you and I were taking a flight, and since we're going over, I don't know, pick a Hawaii, we're, and I wanna sit in first class, by the way. So we're in first class, and because it's my, it's my example. And so we're flying over to Hawaii, and you and I just meet, and we're talking. Nowhere in that conversation am I, am I gonna say, Victor, um, what did you pay for your first class ticket? It's just not, that's not appropriate, right? But if you and I are talking about SAP and we just bought the CPQ module and it just happens that we purchased something similar, do you think that we're gonna talk about 
what that deal looked like? And the answer is yes, we are going to talk about that. And we know this from the competitive intelligence teams that we run. And by the way, that's a whole nother thing. Like ethically extracting competitive intelligence is crucial because you can inadvertently violate uh, the U.S. Espionage Act and federal um, really? uh, issues with I, how I, you, oh, federal issues with, if you mystery shop your competitor, if you call up your competitor and you pretend like a buyer, violation of federal and common law, and here's the trick, federal, that's called unfair and deceptive trade practices in the U.S. because you misrepresented. Secondly, triple damages, triple damages, which creates a real incentive, a real incentive for people to hold you accountable for the for the act that you did. And so you have to be super careful with that. But in that plane ride with CPQ, and this happens all the time, people compare notes. In fact, on the procurement teams, they here's the strategy that they use. They say, well, Victor has great software. This is fantastic. I'll tell my, if I'm the head of that procurement team, I tell my team, go to the website, because they always list the great logos on the main page. Go talk to those logos. And the conversation goes something like, hey, we're in non-competing markets. Um, we noticed that you installed this software. We're thinking of installing the software. And uh, would it be okay if we shared lessons learned? And the whole design of that relationship is to figure out the package that they bought, the price point that they paid, so they can disaggregate services and software. And if that company got a 62% discount, I tell my team, I don't care what you do, but you better get better than a 62% discount. And this is the toilet bowl flush. This is how you end up in like 80, 90% discounts. And people start buying at the end of the quarter, buying at the end of the year. So back to the CPQ example, there are no secrets in B2B. And here's the issue. The issue is that if I want to dynamic price, let's, and there's a, there's a Harvard case study with Basecamp. Basecamp, I think, was the one that they did. The question comes down to, they took a group and they said, well, I'm going to charge them twice the price. <laughs> Surprise, not many people bought. What happened to that group, right? What happened to that group that paid 2x the price versus everybody else who paid x? You don't want to be in that group. And if you're in that group, you're going to be really upset, really upset. And this is the point is you don't get a lot of transactions in B2B. Many companies have hundreds and thousands of transactions, very rarely tens of thousands. They're not dealing with millions in the consumer space. It's a completely different ballgame, completely different ballgame. And so things like testing your willingness to pay on chocolate, you know, on a conjoint basis, first of all, doesn't work. And then in a group buy situation, you've got multiple people, different nationalities, different roles, different influence, as you know, some people make the decision, other people's influence that, or there's a sponsor, et cetera. And try, if you just kind of pretended a how you would like pull that out and model it, I mean, you're gonna need like 3 trillion B2B transactions. And there's just probably more. It's called the curse of dimensionality. You just can't, you can't get there from here. <laughs> love it. I, I never really sliced it that way, but I, I love that. All right, Chris, uh, we're almost out of time here, man. Dude, I, I, I love this conversation. I, 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 <laughs> it was a pleasure. It, it's such a it, it's it's a fascinating topic. And so let the folks know here at the Sales Influence Podcast where they can find out more about you and your company and your services. It's softwarepricing.com. And we have a resource center. So anybody that wants access to things around licensing, packaging, and pricing, or anything that we talked about today is on that resource center. They can just request access to that. Okay, have you published anything, Chris? Any, um, uh, and by the way, I'll put that all in the show notes. Uh, have you published anything, Chris, personally, or your company, a book, uh, well, studies, lots white of, papers, anything? Uh, Ebooks and thought-provoking things on the blog, and there was a lot of talk about um, a book, and I 
you know, maybe one day, but I, it's, it's, uh, as you know, <laughs> that's a little labor of love that I just don't have the bandwidth right now. Yeah. I have two books I'm creating. One is named Christian. He's seven years old and the other is Ella and she's four. So th that's what I'm concentrating on right okay. now. Okay. The two kids. I got you. Well, yeah. You got kids. So it's hard to do, but man, I, I would love for you or your team to put something together, man. I, I would buy your book. I would buy your book. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sure that we, we just we, we just scraped the surface of what you're talking about. Yeah. But anyway, Chris, thank you for your time. Let me sign off here. This is Victor Antonio with the Sales Influence Podcast. When you get a moment, go to check out Chris Mealy's website. What's the name of it? Software? Softwarepricing.com. Softwarepricing.com. So, by the way, that name is so simple. Software. How did you get that domain name? Excellent. Uh, that's well a great done, domain, Software it? Pricing. <laughs> It's a I fantastic <laughs> domain. Yeah. Well done. And, and by the way, we also own uh, marketfairness.com and, and others that sort of wrap around the philosophy that we talked about too. I love that, man. Congratulations. Somebody on the marketing side, maybe yourself, is doing the right thing. So anyway, check out the, web, uh, the website, softwarepricing.com. Uh, also, when you get a chance, check out the Sales Velocity Academy. You know the deal, salesvelocityacademy.com. And on that note, from Chris and myself, Victor Antonio, always remind you, selling ain't hard when you know how to price things and you know how. Take care. See you next time.